it. But we come to a, a topic today that I'm really looking forward to, and that is the, um, uh, what it means to be the church in the world in the realm of artistic expression, uh, or how a Christian thinks about the arts and engage with the arts uh, around them. And it occurs to me that when you start this discussion, more and more you have people, uh, I think, realizing and coming to grips that the Bible has a storyline. Uh, large sort of, if we can use the phrase, narrative arcs that help you know kind of what the Bible is about. Uh, and, and typically when people talk about it, they talk about it in four realms. They say, well, first of all, there's a sense in which you have the story of creation, the creator God, who is the fountain of all being and the creative source behind all things that happen. You then have this idea of a fall where uh, uh, there, was a, there was a cosmic car wreck and the creation that God made was marred by sin and rebellion. We then have this, this intervening of Jesus' work on the cross, uh, the intention of which was to bring about a great worldwide healing that we know will be fulfilled eventually uh, when all things are made new. Okay, This is how we talk about like the storyline of the Bible. Now here's why this is interesting. What if this is the story of the Bible, and the Bible is true, which is the perspective that we're going to take on it, then this particular storyline can be used, as it were, as a prism, okay? That you can almost take really any aspect of life, any piece of cultural uh, information or whatever, and run it through this prism and find out sort of a Christian version of that. Does that make sense? Uh, You could take anything. You could take uh, the topic of politics, let's say. And you can say that God created uh, structures for people to be together uh, as a body. But because of the fall, sin has made us to be disjointed and disintegrated. But Jesus' work on the cross somehow reintegrates people into one place so they can move and act with each other's best interest. And finally, one day, he will take his place as the ultimate king of all cities, the ultimate city. Does that make sense? So you take a topic, filter it through this, and it comes out uh, uh, some, uh, with some interesting results. I want to do that with the question of art uh, this morning. Um, what, do we, what happens when we take the, the, the topic of our art uh, and run it through the prism of the story that God is telling in the world, Um, What do we get on the other side? What can we learn about, first of all, our own engagement with art and as well as those people who do it professionally and otherwise? Um, And I hope you'll see that uh, there's there's a lot of joy here in the way in which God created the world. This has really been one of my favorite topics, but we've got a lot that we want to um, that we want to look at first as we dive in. Okay, that's a cool picture. I wish I'd taken it, but I didn't. But you you never know what happens when your Internet searches when you say uh, Christianity and art. Then we get people drawing this. Is this art? So the first thing we want to talk about is, how does art uh, sort of fit in with the idea of creation? How did God create art? What are we to do with our art is the first question. I recognize it right off the bat. That's kind of a complicated question because the word art is kind of arguable among people. Um, I remember as a child being able to get over the idea that art needed to be representational. You know, somebody would show me a picture and I'd be like, is it a tree or is it not a tree? Because I don't see a tree. And if I can't see a tree, it ain't art. Okay? If it doesn't look like the thing it's supposed to look like, it's not art. That's, I think that's an immature version of it, of course. But we all kind of have that feeling. You're walked into some sort of gallery or walked past something, and you see a price tag on something, you're like, oh, my word. What people do for art these days? You may find yourself as one of those more cynical people about it. I remember when I was in college, um, I'm watching a documentary on one of my favorite uh, musicians, uh, James Taylor. Um, and James Taylor was saying at one point in this documentary what he thought art was. And he said, art is nothing more than what a creative person does when they experience pain in life. Life is inevitably and invariably painful, he says. And what comes out of you as you attempt to grasp that is art. And of course, if you don't think about the life of James Taylor, you're going... Maybe we understand why he was addicted to uh, heroin in the 1960s and early 70s uh, with a worldview like that. But the question comes, what in the world do we mean uh, by art? But I want to deal with a a sort of broader definition uh, from the Bible's perspective. Um, uh, Because God himself, we know, is a creator. 
We know that for a fact. And because he is a creator, art, therefore, is a creature's attempt to imitate his creator. Uh, When my daughters were very, very small, it was always funny to watch how excited they would get uh, for Christmas when they would get kitchen stuff. And they wanted to have their own little apron, and they wanted to have their own little broom. That didn't last long. But they would go behind their mommy wanting to do the things that mommy did, right? It's always imitation. They're imitators. And we do the same thing because God does it. He is creative, and so are we. Uh, One of my favorite authors in this regard is a guy named Mike Cosper. I think Mike is still the worship leader uh, at a Sojourn Church up in Louisville, Kentucky, and a great guy. I love almost everything that Mike puts out. Got a great podcast also, by the way, in the area of uh, uh, creative and arts. He says, the creation images the creator taking what he's made, working with it, shaping it, and making it anew. Creativity, rather than a gift for a limited few, is a universal trait of those made in God's image. Hmm. Creativity is the human impulse to take what God has made it made and to shape it and to make it new. You know, if you think about it, you have um, uh, uh, in Revelation chapter 21, God saying, Behold, I am making all things new. I had a guy in seminary who wrote a paper suggesting that there was something about the newness of God that's almost an attribute of God. If you want to know what God is like, he's the kind of God who likes to make stuff new, fresh, interesting, uh, unique, right? And so it means that God is an artist. Art is nothing more than what, what, what comes out of you when you look at the world that he has laid out in front of you and you shape it and put your imprint on it. You want to be like your creator in that regard. And we not only have that, but we also have God spending lots of time talking about how he wants his people to make something beautiful of the world. We call this, uh, from uh, the Bible's perspective, the creation mandate. And it says basically that man is to exercise dominion over the garden, to tend the garden, to make it bring forth all kinds of fruit. And we also see his people, him, him commanding his people very explicitly when they build the tabernacle with some fascinating things. Listen to this from Exodus uh, uh, chapter 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And he, listen to the language here, God has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs. Huh. (laughs) To work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work, in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach, both him and Aholiab, the son of whatever, of the tribe of Dan. And he has filled them with skill to do every sort of work. Okay, now did you catch that? The gift that certain people have to uniquely take God's world and to craft it in something new and interesting that sort of grabs your eye is God-given. It's the Spirit of God in those people. And so there's a sense in which the idea that God is the source of, of creation of art ought to immediately say that Christians ought to be the best artists or ought to at least be the ones who are the most into it. Because when someone does it, They engage in an activity that is at the very heart of what God wants to do. Um, I realize that that in our tradition, uh, we are um, appreciative of a group of theologians that came up during the early parts of our nation's history called the Puritans. But you know that puritanical is not a compliment uh, in any era, okay? And to the degree that puritanical means sort of moving away from representational uh, art or any kind of sort of engagement in the arts, uh, ought never to be a description of a Christian, if that's what they mean by that. Now, I would argue that's not what they meant by that, but that's another discussion. But the point is this. Our, our human creativity is something that is to be done in mirroring God's image, in honoring God. God himself created a world that is artistically beautiful and delightful as well as useful. And so therefore, to be human is to create. It's in our bloodstream. It's part of what we really want to do. Okay? So that's art as uh, creation. But of course, you know what happened 
uh, everything went uh, uh, south at this point. The whole world is marred by mankind's sin. And what we find very interestingly is because our creativity is wrecked by mankind's sin, you can't really talk about the engagement in the arts without talking about what happened in that moment. And so Romans 1 says this, For although they knew God, he's talking about all creatures that, that were created, Paul is here. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Paul is describing something fascinating, uh, uh, where, where we as people are aware there is a God. He doesn't allow for there to be someone who says to themselves, um, there is no God, and, and is not suppressing a truth that there actually is a God inside their hearts. Very interesting psychological condition that we'll talk about in a second. But they became futile in their thinking. In other words, their thinking became purposeless. It's just spinning in a, in, a, in a circle. And their foolish hearts were darkened. And notice what happens when their foolish hearts are darkened in verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See what mankind did. What mankind did was, as soon as they had jettisoned and said, I'm going to deny, I'm going to hold down, is literally the word that he uses in the verses prior to verse uh, 21 here. As I hold that down, one of the main effects that that's going to have is in my creativity. I'm now going to use my creativity to sort of push God out of the way rather than to uh, celebrate him. So therefore, our creativity is something that is wrecked. That instinct becomes marred. Creating is an good, godly thing. But what happens when we sin, when sin enters the world, is we begin to use our creativity to lie about the world. Okay? That's what, the, that's what Romans 1 is saying, is there is a lie that is happening when mankind does that. And so what that means then is now, on the other side of the fall, when we're living in this sinful world, art and our desire to be creative is just now a whole lot more complex. It got complicated. Now at this point, I'm really, really indebted to a very good friend of mine who is our RUF campus minister uh, at Rhodes College, uh, John Kraft. And a lot of these notes are taken from his great research and work that he's done on this. Um, But um, where is my Flannery O'Connor quote? Here it is. Yes, yes, yes. We're coming to this. He found this great Flannery O'Connor quote that I think is fantastic. Because she says this. Flannery O'Connor, a good man is hard to find. I'm hoping you at least know her name. Uh, uh, I think she's from Macon, Georgia. Where's Flannery O'Connor from? She's from somewhere in Georgia. Got this great country drawl. Um, uh, Flannery O'Connor uh, wrote this, and she wrote a great little book. Uh, oh, no, I forgot the name of it. What's the one about her, her, her writing method? Manners and... Mystery and manners. Mystery and manners. Pow, pow. There, that's what we're talking about. The English major feels like, I've got a purpose, right? <clears throat> I got the answer right. She says, the basis of art is truth. Both in matter and in mode. Now that's bolded and italicized for a reason I'll get to in just a second. The person who aims after art in his work aims after truth in an imaginative sense, no more and no less. The artist is concerned with the good of that which is made. Focus on that phrase for a second, in matter and in mode. Because when I say that when the fall came in that, that, that things got complex because people lie about it, What I worry that people oftentimes think is, therefore, Christians should never engage in, consume, or expose themselves to art that is not true. Okay? What I mean by that, actually, on the opposite of that, is that the sinner's response to the world around them is more psychologically complex. That's what I mean. Look again at that Romans passage, because Paul says that unbelievers know something. They know it because what may be known of God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. That Greek word that's translated plain is the word obvious. (laughs) The the non-Christian world, it is obvious to them that God is there. And I recognize that if a non-Christian was in the room, he'd be like, no, it's not. I'm here. I don't know it. I don't see it. But see, the Bible has a very different description of you if you stand as one who says there is no God. The Bible says of you that you actually do know it. There's just a psychological work that's going on in you that through your misdeeds, through your sin, through your rebellion, you're holding it down. Always. 
suppressing the truth in your unrighteousness. In other words, sin is used as a tool to keep God from actually casting his gaze in my direction. But I know it. I know he's there. It's very, very, very controversial. seems like we should be fighting more over that than other places, you know? Um, But here's the point. We have to ask ourselves then about the effect of sin in our life. What does it mean when we say that, you know, we have, um, that we were being deceived, that we were deceiving ourselves? I remember a a preacher one time making a different point about this, but he said, look, would you ever know it if you were being deceived? Isn't that fun? Because you're like, uh, no. Because by definition, if you were being deceived, you're not being deceived. (laughs) The Bible's definition of you outside of Christ is the deception comes from out of you. You are self-deceived. You see why there's a futility that Paul mentions on that? Because you're like, ah, well, how do I know that what I know is what I know? You're kind of like, can we just go to lunch? Um, it gives me a headache to think about that. But what I'm saying is, is that means that even we are constantly using the natural gifts the Creator has given us to twist and distort the world around us and invariably lie. And for what that means then is for a Christian to think about art, we have to learn how to think about art. And I would like for just a few moments to deal with the question of Christian art. Because people are going to be like, oh yes, of course, Les. I mean, these are the things that I get in my Christian publication magazines that come into my mailbox every week. That's the art that you're talking about. Uh, the good art, you know, that only Christians make, right? Uh, that's what I want to know is where the Christians are making art. Well, mm, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. First of all, I want you to consider just three short ideas here. Number one, art exists to glorify God. Not simply to engage in the activity of evangelism. Um, I found this very interesting to sort of, and I grew up in this sort of subculture, that it's very easy for Christians to sort of lump together, and because they're quite concerned with, you know, the, the, the lying that goes on with the art around them, they decide they want to create a little enclave, a subculture themselves, where they keep the art Christian. Because if we don't have it as Christian, then it can't really continue to do evangelism and win souls. Well, I want to make a distinguishment for a moment between the purpose of our art and the purpose of the church in disseminating the gospel. Because I would not say that it was a goal of the art of art to convert people, necessarily. Not for the purpose of the artist. The artist creates not only to sort of see the world, see the world through God's eyes or to, or to see what they are in God's view, but the artist creates art to glorify God. He wants to see him glorified. That's not necessarily uh, purely a work of, uh, of evangelism. Secondly, we always have to remember the already and the not yet. Remember I told you that phrase was going to come up again and again? We live in a mixed world. And because that is a mixed world, it means that every time we go into engage in any piece of art, any cultural artifact, we have to realize there will be some things that we can commend that, we, that, are, that are praiseworthy because of how they represented it. And there'll be some things that probably need to be condemned because we live in a world and even in our own hearts. It also means that we have to be able to, um, when we look at art, realize that that art, even though it is depicting the sinfulness and brokenness of the world, might be saying something true. Does that make sense? Remember, Flannery O'Connor, if she's right, art is wanting to say something that is true about the world. And because we live in the already and the not yet, just because someone has depicted sin in their art does not mean that they have lied. You follow? In other words, if they sort of caricature, if they if they frame sin in a way that is actually biblical, then the sin is itself um, uh, true, because that's what it really is there. And then finally, we have to remember that God is outward in nature. And we can't therefore assume that our art must always sort of uh, uh, digress into religious enclaves to pull in and to become purely internal uh, about it. We have to make sure that our art is going out into the public square. There's an argument to be made that that's the purpose of art, is to sort of be our outward face to the world around us. Uh, um, John came up with some fantastic quotes on this regard that I want to read for you. The first one comes from Andy Crouch. Remember we talked about him a whole lot a few weeks ago in his book, Culture Making? He says, the greatest danger of copying culture as a posture is that we may too well become, we may too well become successful. 
What he's talking about are Christians who are like, well, you know, if you like, when I was a kid, there used to be um, uh, uh, companies that would try to sell Christian rock bands to you. And they would literally say things like, if you like Van Halen, then you'll love uh, Striper or something like that. Uh, so, you know, some Christian band. It was kind of like, and, and there was this joke kind of going around that they were like Christian designer imposters. You remember the old, the, 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 the perfume commercials, ladies? They were like, you know, if you like, you know, <laughs> leafing through, trying to think of the name of a perfume, Chanel, is that a perfume? Okay, if you like beautiful, and that was something you've got, Ginger, beautiful. If you like beautiful, then you'll love, you know, something. You know, designer imposters at half the price. And you begin to feel that that's a little bit about what Christians were doing, that we had just simply said, well, let's just take whatever they're doing, baptize it, put some Christian language on it, and boom, it's Christian. Right? And Crouch is saying, don't do that. Because we may become too successful and we end up creating an entire subcultural world within which Christians comfortably move and have their being without ever encountering the broader cultural world that they're into imitating. We breed a generation that prefers facsimile to reality. Okay, this is what Flannery O'Connor is talking about. She's like, we are to sort of be, seek the truth in matter and in mode. Not just in the things that we create as God-glorifying Christian artists but also in the way that we engage in it that ought to be reflective of God. Not only is this a generation incapable of genuine creative participation in the ongoing human drama of culture making, it is dangerously detached from a God who is anything but predictable and safe. Ooh, that's good. I like the way he says that. Uh, the second quote comes from, uh, from actually a friend of mine uh, who lives up in New York City. That's uh, uh, Makoto, but he goes by Mako. Um, Mako Fujimura is a world-renowned um, uh, uh, Japanese artist working in, out of New York. Uh, and Mako is fascinating because he, 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 his medium of choice uh, is a very ancient, when I say ancient, when the Chinese say ancient, like they mean ancient, ancient. Um, um, ancient sort of uh, method of staining uh, paper, paper staining. And he actually makes his own paper. Um, and what he does is he takes natural minerals that have colors to them, and he'll grind them up in special ways and mix them with chemicals in special ways so that he stains uh, this paper in this particular way. Um, and what comes out of this art form is, is highly, highly abstract, <laughs> extremely abstract. And I, I remember sitting in Mako's studio probably 10, 12 years, no, a long time ago. Mm, huh, 16 years ago. Wow, sorry. Just had a, had a hot flash of age right there for a moment. <laughs> Dang it. Um, sitting in Mako's studio, and he brought out this, uh, this, this, this red rectangle. <laughs> and it was stained. You could tell that it was kind of, it was kind of blotchy, and, but it was red. And he sat in front of me and he goes, what do you all think of this? You're like, it looks like a red rectangle. I'm no abstract artist, but it's a red rectangle. But it was fascinating when Mako started talking about this, this, this piece and what he was thinking about when he put it together. And suddenly the thing took on new life, and I'm always looking for it whenever I flip through all of his stuff. Anyway, Mako wrote a great book, uh, article on this a while back where he said, so in answering the weakness of Christian creative output, he's talking about Christian art, I would say that we shouldn't have a mindset in which we categorize, is this Christian or not? Now listen, this is where Mako's getting genius here. But instead I should ask, is this good and point towards our thriving? First, I would focus on making Christianity a noun rather than an adjective. (laughs) Rather than creating Christian art, make art that is thoroughly and completely in Christ. See what he's saying? Saying the same thing Flannery O'Connor saying. It must tell the truth about the world. That means we need to start with knowing Christ and walking intimately with God. Second, endeavor then to learn symbols from all sorts of cultures, including pagan cultures. And by symbols, he means the way in which other cultures do their work of reflecting the creative process. Listen to them. I believe that all cultures have keys to unlock our deeper understanding of the gospel, but those nuggets of truth have been twisted. We need to go into the Babylons of the world, like Daniel, and first learn to be a better Babylonian than the Babylonians. Man, if you want to understand 
uh, 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 Tim Keller's little phrase, subversive fulfillment, like we talked about three weeks ago, that's a great definition of it. The idea is to go into the pagan culture and do the pagan culture better than the pagan culture did the pagan culture. In other words, to fulfill all of their hopes and aspirations, but to recognize that you're doing it all wrong. And the way you're doing it leads to destruction. And the way we're doing it leads to flourishing on all humans. Then we need to work to untwist the cultural language and interpret their dreams from the Daniel story. We may even then create new expressions and new words, which it seems to me the Holy Spirit offers. New ways of looking and seeing the truth uh, in that regard. Look, if art is going to tell the truth about the world, this is my only summary point, it's going to have to tell a story of sin and error, which are going to involve songs in a minor key. Uh, it's going to have to re- 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 it's going to have to deal with the violence and the profanity and the misshapen humanity that we are doing to ourselves and to others every single human era. Now look, I don't want to have this conversation now, but maybe we'll tease it for a question Q and A. Are horror films true? And when did our culture all of a sudden start looking at horror films differently? If you don't realize that this is a huge money making genre in our world, you're not paying attention. <laughs> They took a lull, interestingly, in the mid-90s, but sort of came back with the release of The Blair Witch Project, a movie which I still have never seen more than three minutes of because of the shaky camera. Um, I I can think about a boat and get seasick, and watching that movie is, 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 is torturous for me. But I remember what's fascinating about that movie is, is, uh, so I'm told, and what I see, um, you never get to see the, to see the monster in that movie. And it's almost as if there's a group of young people rising up and saying, you know what? I think there might just be something out there. There might just be something behind the world of pain and horror and evil that we see that's actually pulling the strings of this. Again, I'm not asking whether it's good. I'm not even asking whether it's a good idea for you to watch it. Not a commendation for it. We'll get to that in just a second. But it's simply saying... Maybe, though, there might be something true about that. And one of the reasons why people sort of wrestle with violent films is because they're trying to understand our violence towards each other and in the world. Man, I'm getting some great looks on your faces right now. I wish I could take a picture of the look on your faces. Let's go to the good news, right? What about art and redemption? We looked at art and creation. We just got finished with art in the fall. What about the redemption of art? How did Jesus' work on the cross... Come and try to reform art. What is it trying to do? And how can a Christian be uh, uh, helpful in that regard? Well, in many ways, the advance of the kingdom, the work of the church to sort of spread the kingdom out there is a work of art. And and I'm saying that explicitly. You know, God's people getting creative behind his uh, uh, creative activity um, is basically described at one point in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 by a work of art. You don't realize this because the translation sort of shields it. Ephesians 2.10, For we are His, and this is a good one to underline, workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Workmanship. Isn't that an interesting translation of that word? The Greek word underneath there is the word poema, from which we get the word poem. The word is not a craftsman's word. It is an artist's word. You are, Paul says, God's poem. You are God's work of art. He is making you into a work of art. Something to be lovely. Something to be beautiful. Something that is his poem to the world. So therefore, we got to ask the question, what are Christians' best practices when we engage in these art? Can we identify best practices? Again, I'm leaning on uh, my friend John for some of these great insights here. Um, Christians engage the world around them with an appreciation for the mixed world in which we live. That's the first one. You know, judging art is therefore a complex experience. Judging art is complex. And we have to work to understand the art that we're critiquing. So much of our opinions and our judgment calls are up to wisdom for us to understand. And therefore, Christians should expect that when any sort of piece of art is presented to them, whether it's a book, whether it's a piece of music, whether it's um, a movie or a television series, or even the decorator that you choose to uh, adorn your home, okay? 
the question we're realizing is it's going to be complex. And we've got to start by recognizing how complex it is. John dug up this guy who was talking about Tupac. And my, 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 my interest this morning was to see how many people have any idea who Tupac is. This is a test for the old people. You've got to hang with the young people here, right? Tupac was a rapper that was uh, uh, brutally murdered uh, years ago, uh, but was, had a huge impact, especially in talking about police brutality in the uh, modern world. But this guy named Daniel White Hodge in his book, The Soul of Hip Hop, talks about Tupac and how complex it was to understand what it was he really wanted to do. He said, Tupac's theology is not something to be taken lightly, nor without careful study of his life. Many Christians would rather discard people like Tupac because they are too difficult to deal with. (laughs) I love that. The Tupacs of the world question too much. They appear as troublemakers. They have deep theological questions of God that can't be answered in three-point sermons. Hey now, hey now, watch it. We love our three-point sermons. We work very hard to get you three points. Because what else would you come for on Sunday morning, right? (laughs) live in a constant state of ambiguity, accept and sometimes embrace their sin life. Ooh, did you catch that? Accept and sometimes embrace. Appear arrogant and don't fit any type of normal Christian faith. (laughs) On the one hand, you have Tupac's illicit language, debaucherous mannerisms, profuse use of marijuana, alleged violations of Jesus' commandments, which is probably the first thing that an upper-middle-class white person, this room, Um, thinks about when you think about some of that stuff. But flip the script, and you have Tupac empowering communities, admitting to all of his shortcomings and failures, admitting to make a direct link between God and man, asking for a location in heaven, and declaring the love of Jesus, lifting him up so that non-churchgoers can connect to him. What does one do with that? (laughs) Now look, The only point I'm making is not, so let's all go out and listen to Tupac. That may not be your bag. That's not the lesson. That means you're not thinking the way I'm wanting you to think. What I'm saying is, is even something that might immediately be difficult for you to fathom might have some elements of it that you can affirm. Answer, how do I know which is which? The answer is, it's complex. It's not easy. And oftentimes, I think sometimes our children realize this the most. And at the same time, the least. On the one hand, our children, I think, look and they see things that resonate within them because they're gathering information in the world. And they want to understand why that's resonating. But then on the other hand, without the skills to have been taught how to think about the stuff that they're consuming or exposing themselves to, it oftentimes can sweep them away. But what I'm saying is, is what we tend to want as parents is reactionism. You know, here's a piece of information that my children give me over here, and I'm going to ride that pendant on the other side, which usually ends up sounding to their ears like, just quit it. You will never have that phone again. You will never listen to that person again. You will never do that again. You'll never be with that again. We ride that reaction rather than acknowledging the fact that there might be some complexity here. Who knows what we might learn if we listen a little bit. You are welcome, young people. (laughs) Number two. Yeah, we got this whole thing that Christians engage the world around with mixed. Number two, Christians are called to take responsibility for themselves and where God has, tra- has placed them in their sanctification. Okay? Look, art is powerful. And for that reason, there is an opportunity for art to seize upon the prevailing idolatries of our hearts. Invariably. Okay? Paul says it this way. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable... Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's Paul's admonition there. Um, The bottom line is the, the, the sort of culture artifacts around us react to us in very different ways. Um... Let's talk about, for just a few moments here, uh, a, a, an artistic word uh, that ends up getting thrown around, the F word. When I was in high school and college, the F word was the granddaddy of all curse words. Like it was, you didn't come anywhere close to that word unless there was horrifying, terrible business that you intended. I don't know if you've recognized that for some reason that has become like, it, it's different in this day. <laughs> it's hard to describe it without actually sort of depicting it, and I don't care for that. But it's amazing how much in, 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 in my children's world, in the halls of Oxford High School, that is the wallpaper. That's like the, that's like the white noise of their particular world. 
Now, does that mean that that's any more acceptable? Or does that mean that therefore, boy, these kids today, y'all just don't know how bad things have gotten? Mm, don't, get, don't get uppity about that. Don't make me go back into your world and take a look at the things you were doing during your young people age. I'm just saying that they change even over time. The meanings even of the things that are coming out of us change over time. And not only do I need to be aware of their complexity, but I've got to be aware of the way in which they're working on me. There are seasons of my life I've even been through where for whatever reason, I could not watch certain shows about certain things because I could feel myself getting washed away by those particular things because they fed in with my idolatries. Think about the prophet Daniel for a second. Daniel fully engaged in the culture of the Babylonians. He took their education. He became the master of it. But he didn't become a Babylonian. What did he do? He refused to eat the rich foods that the king offered to him, right? Why? Not because it was unlawful, but because for him it would mean that he would lose his Israelite identity. In other words, I've got to remember who I am while we're here in captivity, and that will distract it. So therefore, he didn't want to become a Babylonian while his people were being oppressed. See the point? It's a wisdom issue. Um, Let me take another example. A number of years ago, I watched uh, what is considered by many critics to be uh, the the most um, significant television series ever made. Do you ever know this? It, they're, they're, I, I really, it's hard to find a critic who won't say that this is as good as it gets. And the name of the, of the show is five, five season series called The Wire. Okay? Um, I watched it. I watched all five grim seasons. And I likely will never do that again. I can almost tell you certainly I'll never do it again. Why? First of all, I did not watch it to be entertained. And as it turns out, the guy who created the series, a guy named David Simon... Uh, created the series with no interest in entertaining anyone. David Simon, in his, in his quotes after the series had come out, had said, I had no interest in entertaining anyone, though if someone is entertained, that might be their own thing. My hope and my desire was to tell the truth about what is going on in our inner cities. I'm going to tell the truth, and I'm going to tell it in all of its raw and ugly and brutal and violent disgust. And having watched it, I'm a different person. It changed me. It worked on me. It changed the way in which I attempt to evaluate what's going on in our cities and the solutions that we're trying to sort of be there. Now, would I ever commend that to someone for them to watch it? 99.99% of the time, absolutely not. There is no commendation for that. Except for the fact that I can say that the series, though, tells the truth. It tells the truth. And therefore, I can commend it for that. It tells the truth about what's going on in our inner cities. And here's the interesting thing. You can disagree with me on that and say, Les, garbage in, garbage out. And there's a truth to that. And that has to do with the idolatries that I'm dealing with as an individual, hopefully that you're having in mind. There may be other people who make their job out of dealing with inner cities and might need to have themselves get a wake-up call for that particular purpose. So you see what I'm saying? These cultural artifacts are not easy to digest. Christians for a while there got very, very exercised over the Harry Potter novels. Remember this? For a while there, Harry Potter was signed that you, you know, had, had tattooed like a, a, a pentagram on your shoulder or something like that because you were into the Harry Potter novels. I don't want my children to blindly embrace the values of this particular worldview that's being represented in this book. Okay, okay, agreed. <laughs> but instead of maybe telling our children what to think, Maybe if we taught them how to think about the culture that they're, that they're grasping, wouldn't that be different? Doesn't the best education do that for them, giving them the tools of how they can evaluate those things in accordance with their own particular idolatries? And that just means that the way in which you're raising your kid might be a little bit different than the way someone else is raising their kid. And that doesn't mean that they're being bad because of it. <laughs> Does anybody want to be judged on the basis of their children? Nope. Lastly, Christians therefore are called to understand the art form on its own on their own terms. I remember, you know, the, the Mako painting was one. But in another trip back to New York, I was walking through the Metropolitan, excuse me, the Museum of Modern Art, MoMA, um, and of course, obviously, a lot of uh, abstract painting. We walked up to a painting by a guy named uh, Robert Ryman, and as you walked up to it, not making this up, it was a white painting. That's it. I just described to you the painting. It was big. It was pretty, probably as long as this pew, and tall as that. 
and it was, it was white. <laughs> and so I kind of turned the corner, and I'd seen all kinds of weird things walking to the museum at that point. And I walked up there, and I was like, okay, all right. Now you're not even trying, okay? <laughs> I know for a fact that I can reproduce this, okay? This is not that deal. <laughs> so, so then all of a sudden, there was a guide who walked up, and I was with a student. Uh, we were up there on our little mission trip we used to take all the time to New York. And we were standing there kind of looking and kind of snickering at each other. And this guide walked to us, and he goes, he goes, you don't get it, do you? And I'm like, nope. Sure don't. I don't get it. And it was really interesting um, um, to talk about, to hear what he said. He actually quoted this other critic that he, lent, he tried to send us towards a, uh, an article that was written where they were talking about Robert Ryman's work. And this is what they said. Ryman's work's economy and quietness may be pleasing, but its chief attraction is philosophical. What is a painting? Ryman is asking. Are there values inherent in the medium's fundamental givens? Paint, skin, Support surface, a wall, when they are denied traditional decorative and illustrative functions. Such questions absorb Ryman. Do they excite you? Your answer might betray how old you are. Dang it, did it again. <laughs> what do you mean I'm old? In other words, the point was not what he was asking a question are we willing to ask hard questions about art? Is it art when it's just a white piece of painting? What about the way I framed it? What about the wall that it's on? Does that say anything? And again, you may look and be like, wow, you've wasted your time. But it's still something that's got thoughtfulness behind it. Strangely, I began to find the work interesting and compelling. And I started looking at the other white paintings that the man had. Not to look at the white painting, but to see where they were mounted, to see why he mounted them. What is he thinking? What's he trying to say? Does that make sense? <laughs> again, you're being like, I will never be there. That's all right. <laughs> the point is, Christians ought to be the best at learning the language of the artist. What are they trying to say? What are their forms about? What is the genre in which they're operating in? So I can see whether they're telling the truth about their world. Is that right, Keith? That's right. Keith is nodding his head back there. All right, last topic, and we'll finish with this and maybe have some time for questions. Fulfillment. This is a huge thing. There is no reason to think that the job of the artist is going to end in the new heavens and the new earth. Lots of people's jobs will end in the new heavens and the new earth. You ever thought about this? Um, policeman, no offense, you won't have a job being a policeman in heaven, right? Because when sin is gone, there'll be some jobs that'll be unnecessary, um, especially if there's no more crying. You know, tear, tear dabbers, you know, you're, you're out of a job in heaven. It's just the way it is. Some, some jobs are going to go away, but the artist's job will not. There's no reason to think so. Uh, C.S. Lewis in the, uh, 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 the, the last of the Narnia Chronicles, uh, The Last Battle, has my favorite quote from Jewel the Unicorn. When he says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. Come further up. Come further in. And what happens is, is Aslan and all of the rest of the people take up that theme and they march into heaven and they keep shouting further up and further in because there's no end. There's no end to the beauty they keep discovering. It never ceases. It's a little bit like what you have when people look at the, um, the Hubble telescope. Is it the deep space photographs? What do we call it? The deep space photographs from Hubble? And they're like, okay, we're looking at a tiny sliver. If the, it, it, I don't know whether the universe is a sphere. Rob's going to answer you all questions about that one day. Eric Kahn will answer next week whether the universe is a sphere because he's a scientist. But we're looking at one small little sliver of field of vision from the Hubble telescope. And we can't count how many galaxies are in the middle of that slice of that sphere <laughs> of, of, the, of the heavens. Look, all I'm saying is God has implanted the universe with infinite resources that will take us infinite times, infinite days to mine what he's already placed out there. So the work of the artist will never stop. So C.S. Lewis says, and as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. See, they're English majors. I told you I'd give you a good one. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. Oof. See what that means? It means that our art needs to make us long for that. Further in and further up. 
keep going further into it, further into this story that God is telling from his perspective. Okay? Creation, fall, redemption, fulfillment. I left, ooh, look at that, seven minutes for questions. Any thoughts about art or otherwise, or the responsible art consumption? I hate using that word, consuming art, because it assumes sometimes that art is always there for our entertainment. That's not necessarily the case. Sometimes our art is for our confrontation, to to bust us up, uh, to to offend us, to shock us in some sense. Yes, Greg. So a a comment on if we're allowed to have a conversation with you about it afterwards. Sure, sure. I think that's a great tidbit. You know, am am I willing to talk with my kids about the art that they're consuming um, and not always let my first reaction be the one that viscerally shocks me? Now, look. There's some things that you should be visually shocked at. Um, you know, if a teenage boy is claiming to have this newfound, fascinating interest in uh, nude photography, I might have some questions about that, right? Um, might be some things that we can look at. And my my, my jerk, jerk reaction is probably pretty good on that one. But there are other times in which we unnecessarily create walls between us and our children because we just not listen to the things that they want to listen to. Because it's just different than what I like. And we've got to show some care about what we're dismissive of. Especially if we find out that they're getting passionate about it. Because if they're getting passionate about it, I'm just interested. You know? I'm not trying to come in with a judgment yet. But I want to hear. What is this appealing to you about? What do you want to think about? And a lot of folks don't want to think about it. You know? I don't, I don't, we don't have this. Because they feel like I'm judging them for it. Is there a way to convince them that I'm not? I don't know. I'm just saying that it's more complex than we typically know than coming up and making a list of the things that we do and do not expose our children to. It's complex. Yes. Oh, I didn't. I didn't. Having watched it, though, I began to listen to the people who talk about The Wire and the people who spend time in the inner city, and they all said, this is exactly what happened. In other words, I don't think a piece of art comes to us on its own, on its own merit, uh, or on its own, um, detached from other, other sources. But the more that I spent time with my own friends who work in the inner city, um, guys like uh, Lupin, what's the lady in Charlottesville? I went through a whole season where I was reading about what's going on in our inner cities. I don't mean to say that David Simon, everything that he said in The Wire was true. I'm not, I don't mean to say that. I think his larger point, that the solutions that America is trying to bring to our inner cities are not working. That premise I'm actually convinced of. Now, whether his solutions are, in in episode three, one of his great solutions is to simply decriminalize all drug use. (laughs) And he plays out this experiment. It's highly controversial. (laughs) Just a little bit, right? Highly controversial. I'm not necessarily saying that that's the truth that I believe. Does that help? I'm not buying everything. I'm saying he was saying, whatever we're doing is not working. And he said that over and over again. Almost every interview that David Simon was interviewed about The Wire, as critics and everybody else tried to grapple with it, he was saying, I'm simply trying to expose the fact that what we're doing in our inner cities is not working because people are dying and people are suffering, and what we're trying to bring into their world is not helping them. Yeah, see, Liza's picking on, on, on my kind of thing. Like, music is just, it, it is wallpaper to my life. I've always got it on. I've got an Apple Music subscription. I've got 10,000 songs in my library. You know, whatever. Whatever obsession you can make. I'm into music. I love your music. Um, but it didn't take me long to realize that I could be affected by certain songs. Um, I, I started doing a, um, a, a, a yearly highlights playlist uh, in like 2009. Uh, and as, as we get to know each other's stories, I can at least tell you that during 2010 and 2011, I went through a very, very, very hard season of my life uh, for reasons that we'll talk about sometime later. But when you go back and you look at my playlists, because I basically go through my top most played songs, um, it's amazing how depressing my music was during those two years. And you want to be like, wow, <laughs> who was helping whom in that moment? Now, I know that when you're down and somebody turns on like Katrina and the Waves walking on sunshine, you want to slap them, you know, <laughs> turn it off. I'm not saying that therefore if you're sad, only listen to happy music. I'm just saying be aware of the fact that my interaction with art will oftentimes be tap dancing on personal idolatries that are sometimes similar and sometimes different from the person next to me. And maybe we might say, you know, maybe if you sort of balanced out your diet in this regard. 
or maybe if I actually sort of engage in a different way. That's worth asking. Susan. Right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, see, I, I agree with your last statement. I totally agree with because I do think one of the ways the church can do that is, is to stop assuming that only Christian art is, is, is real art. Um, I'll say this. I'm not necessarily certain that the church's role is to be an art gallery. Uh, there's a lot of churches around the country that actually have turned their churches into art galleries at a certain point of time. Don't get me wrong. I would love for there to be good art on the walls of our new building. <laughs> I'm not saying that. Some of your interior decorators will be like, wait a minute. Um, what I'm saying is the goal, I think, is to first of all help people understand what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be in union with Christ, and allow the Holy Spirit to work in that person's natural creativity and then send them out. I worry about both extremes. I worry that we never empower people to go make good art, but I also worry about so entrapping them in religious art that they're not able to say something significant to the world. Does that make sense? It's a wisdom issue. Now, that doesn't mean that a church who has said, we're not trying to say that the church's primary goal is to be an art gallery, but we really think that in our culture, we need to say something to our artistic community. So we are going to allow our lobby to be an art gallery for people. And then come in and see it for free and display it and whatever else. I get that. I get that. That's, that, I think, is appropriate. But not necessarily the primary activity of the church. The church, I think, stays within its realm of ministry of the word, right administration of the sacraments, and godly oversight and discipline. We are ministerial and declarative about what it means to be in Christ first. And everything after that kind of moves away from that primary responsibility. Good questions. Yes, ma'am. Listen, one last question. Yeah, is that right? I love Edith and Francis Schaefer, some of their little pioneers for the Reformed and Presbyterian community on doing it well. Because I think her famous book is called The Art of Homemaking. Isn't that fascinating? She saw herself as a mom and a wife as like making art for her home. And even just a bouquet of flowers on a table is a way of beautifying something. Come on, guys. That's not a bad thing. The fact that she wants to beautify herself and the world around her is what we, is what we like about the world. How awful it would be if we didn't have people who had that artistic guy. That's a great reference. Let me, let me pray for us as we close. Lord Jesus, then give us new eyes to look and to see the world that is so beautiful that you have, that you have woven, that you have uh, uh, created for us. Even sunshine that comes out after a rainy evening uh, that we might look and realize that you are painting for our delight. That you want, our, you want your children to walk away and be wowed by the things that you're doing. Um, help us to think more carefully about ourselves. Some of us are engaging in art that is really bad for us, and we need to repent and walk away from that. Others of us have walked away and made our lives gray for no good reason, and we need to, we need to get interested again and curious again. So we, we pray that the Holy Spirit would do that hard work of applying to us what we need at this time, um, and in so doing, in the end, bring glory to you. Would you do that? We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.